Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. And what a year this is. What a year this is. I'm going to be glad to see it disappear through the rear view, and hopefully sooner than later, we will have those vaccines available to us to deal with COVID-19 to the best of our scientific ability. Joining us on the program is the Premier of Alberta, Jason Kenney. We want to speak with the Premier about the uh, steps that the uh, provincial government has taken as far as rules and expectations for all citizens concerning COVID is concerned. Premier, thank you very much for the time. Good to be here, Roy. Would you explain to us, please, what it is you've changed, what you're doing in Alberta as far as COVID is concerned, and what the thinking behind it is? First, some context, Roy. Uh, Throughout the uh, COVID period, Alberta has had the least uh, strict public health uh, measures uh, because we've really put a lot of emphasis on education and personal responsibility. Uh, Alberta really has a culture of what I call responsible freedom. And we managed to get through the first uh, seven or eight months of the COVID period with lower levels of infections, hospitalizations, and COVID deaths than the other large provinces, than I think all of the U.S. states and almost all of the European countries. Uh, And I'm glad we've taken that approach, but now we do see a very problematic increase in in cases that's also showing up, of course, in hospitalizations and ICU admissions. Uh, And uh, so we did call on Albertans with some voluntary measures recently, uh, for example, to stop social gatherings at home. Our data indicates that about 40% of cases are traceable to transmission uh, at private social functions, largely at people's homes. Then uh, this past week, we introduced a, a few, I would say, modest restrictions um, uh, around possible vectors of transmission, one of which was being uh, uh, to stop uh, alcohol service at, at bars and restaurants at 10 p.m. Um, because we had we were ticketed, we were seeing a number of um, uh, bars and pubs turning into sort of nightclubs later at night in in total violation of, of of just common sense at this time. And the second thing was uh, uh, that uh, we've suspended uh, fitness classes and and uh, amateur sports activities for a couple of weeks. Um, also calling on uh, uh, office uh, businesses to uh, look at, at shift work or, you know, sort of doing a rotational thing to keep their, the number of workers at, uh, at the office down. Um, these are relatively modest measures, and I really hope that people respond positively, because if not, um, it's, we'll have no option but to look at more restrictive measures down the line. Premier, let me just play something for you that uh, Mayor Nenshi said uh, in Calgary. Go ahead and play that. I've got women and men out there with uniforms and ticket books who currently cannot write tickets. Uh, And I think that if there are people who are egregiously and flagrantly putting others at risk, they ought to get a ticket. Premier? Well, we do have the ability to enforce public health orders through uh, Alberta Health Services. uh, And uh, they have been doing that. But at the very beginning of this, uh, Roy, our chief medical officer said something I thought very insightful. That we're not going to enforce our way out of this. Uh, we're not going to turn Alberta into a police state, uh, and ultimately, we will have to re- we have to rely on uh, on per- people exercising personal responsibility. Um, having said that, if um, if we continue to see evidence of, of large at home parties, typically involving younger people, or just trying to blow off steam, understandably. 
we may have to start enforcing uh, the public health order, uh, bringing in an actual order instead of a recommendation against uh, uh, at-home socializing, that being our largest vector of transmission. The reason for this, Roy, is because of the threat it poses to the hospital system. Um, we are cancelling thousands of uh, non-urgent surgeries right now, and we're having to move more and more patients out of hospitals who are there for non-urgent care in order to make way for a growing number of COVID patients. So this is not, I, I, my appeal to Albertans is this is not like uh, a political argument. This is not an abstraction. This is a reality. Um, if you have a, a friend or a relative who's on a surgical wait list or it needs medic, non-urgent medical care, they are being negatively affected by the growth of the virus in Alberta. So we may have to take stronger measures if people do not respond. Premier, there's been a lot of talk, um, and it's been covered in various news stories and opinion pieces, about whether the federal government is preparing to declare an emergency and take over direction of battling the pandemic from the provinces. Have you heard anything to that effect? And what would your sense be? Well, how would you react if the federal government were to say, look, we're going to now declare this an emergency and we're running the show now? How would you respond? Well, I would respond by saying that would be a, a huge mistake. Uh, Roy, back in the spring, I think in April, May, um, the prime minister did float a couple of times with the premier's the idea of invoking the Federal Emergency Measures Act. And it was never quite clear to us why uh, there was unanimously negative response from the 13 provincial and territorial premiers. And um, uh, the federal government, uh, finally the prime minister confirmed that they had no intention of actually doing that. So I'm not sure where the speculation is coming from. Uh, we have not heard that directly from the federal government. Uh, as you know, Roy, the, this um, disease has... A totally different uh, levels of, of, of spread and infection in different provinces and within regions within provinces. Provinces are responsible for the delivery of health care. And, Can and Canadian provinces have done very well. Uh, obviously, uh, Quebec has been an, an outlier on that, and Quebec and Ontario with their long-term care f uh, facilities. But um, I'll, I'll just point to the experience of Alberta. Uh, we are below the average uh, annual number of mortalities for the year. And that is particularly so for people over the age of 65, who are, of course, uh, those overwhelmingly uh, at risk of COVID-19, um, where we've seen an increase in deaths over the average of the past few years is amongst younger men associated with drug overdoses, which in turn uh, were probably increased by because of COVID restrictions. We early on um, made a mistake of, of when we brought in all those restrictions in the spring of suspending in uh, residential uh, drug treatment programs, which left a lot of people to fend for themselves. They fell into overdose situations. Also, we think based on the input from, um, uh, from uh, people who are uh, in the addictions field that the CERB payments it, it resulted in, in higher levels of drug purchases and consumptions by younger men. So my point is, this is complex, and it's regionally different, and provinces are best suited to deal with it. I, I, I would just point out that uh, the, <laughs> there are many countries around the world, Taiwan, South Korea, um, Singapore, many others, that have had very low levels of COVID, in part because they shut their borders from COVID hotspots, including Wuhan, at the very beginning in January and February, when our federal government was telling us that it would be politically incorrect to do so. So, I, I, you know what? Um, we're all in this together, but I, I really don't think it's appropriate for the federal government to be uh, wagging its finger at the provinces that have been doing their best to balance the protection of both lives and livelihoods.
Yeah, no, the federal government, just in my opinion, for whatever it's worth, the federal government isn't set up to do this particular job. It really is the job of the provinces. Speaking of the provinces, Premier, I know you have great concerns about the interprovincial trade barriers that exist in Canada. And it was Premier Higgs who sat on this program two years ago. But play the clip. Go ahead and play it. It makes you wonder if our if, if Canada is a nation or a notion. So this is why I brought this up with Premier Higgs. What's your sense of where we stand, particularly at a time when our economic reality and our economic strengths have to be maximized when we have these interprovincial trade barriers in place? Well, there are studies pre-COVID that estimate the cost to Canada's economy of interprovincial trade barriers. It ranges between 40 and over $100 billion a year. At a time when we desperately need growth, in part to get people back to work, but also to pay for the huge COVID-era spending. Uh, here's a simple, no-cost thing. This doesn't cost governments or taxpayers a dime, but could generate um, tens of billions of dollars of new en- economic activity and with it hundreds of thousands of jobs. Uh, we've been, uh, I've been very frustrated. Uh, Roy, l- last year, my, first, my second month as, as Premier of Alberta, I unilaterally eliminated 85% of Alberta's uh, exemptions under the Canada Free Trade Agreement. We've invited provinces like New Brunswick and Ontario, other provinces, to join the New West Partnership Agreement of the four Western provinces, which is a much higher free trade agreement. And and, and this week, Roy, I will be introducing a bill in Alberta's legislature um, that will uh, basically lead to uh, unilateral recognition of professional trade certification for workers from across Canada who come to work in Alberta. Um, when you uh, you know, if you go to Quebec and have a tooth, they can go to the doctor, dentist. You don't ask if they're certified in Ontario. You know, if, you, if you're sick in Manitoba and you're from Ontario, you don't ask if the nurse is registered with the Manitoba Nurses College. Um, why do we have these barriers to internal uh, labor mobility, which are the single largest and most costly part of the Balkan- economic balkanization of our country? If you can move freely and sell goods and services within 28 member states of the European Union, why can you not do it within the 10 provinces of the Canadian Federation? Yeah. So now we have the Michigan governor, Michigan Governor Whitmer in court, looking to shut down the Enbridge Line 5 under the Mackinac Strait, contending the pipeline is a major danger to the Great Lakes and what the lakes represent to millions of people. The governor of Ohio is disputing that. What do you say about all of this? Well, this is a very serious concern, uh, Roy, and, and your Ontario listeners should really pay attention to this. Line 5 is a 60-year-old pipeline that has safely transported uh, Alberta oil to the upper Midwest U.S. states and southern Ontario um, without a, a significant environmental incident for 60 years. It delivers about 640,000 um, uh, barrels of oil a day, it is the single largest su- supply for gasoline, ultimately, in southern Ontario, uh, for aviation fuel out of the Detroit airport, for um, heating fuel in northern Michigan, for the refineries in northern Ohio that, that fuel much of the uh, Midwest U.S. economy. So this is a very, very big deal. Uh, for the past three years or so, uh, the Attorney General of Michigan has been trying to shut down this line five because it, um, it there are the pipeline crosses the Straits of Mackinac 
And they've been alleging this is unsafe. Enbridge, the great Canadian company that operates and owns the pipeline, has been trying to, has been putting forward a plan to replace that with a under the ground, under the surface, modern pipeline, even though the current one is very safe. And the uh, the, the governor just came out um, and basically said that she's pulling the permit for the 60-year-old uh, safe pipeline. The impact of this is going to be, it would be devastating. Now, of course, Enbridge is going to go to court on this. I actually went down and visited Michigan, tried to meet with the governor last year. She refused to, she wouldn't see me. She couldn't find time, I guess, on the schedule. But I did meet the governor of Ohio, who strongly supports uh, the, the continued operation of Line 5, and uh, Premier Ford as well, because he understands that this would be devastating to the Ontario economy. This is just part of the broader campaign to landlock Canadian energy that I've spoken about so many times on your program. I also like talking to, and you know, there's people who say, you know, you've never talked to anybody on the left of the spectrum, and that's not true because I've had very good friends and have friends who are on the left of the spectrum. We may not agree that today is Sunday, but we, uh, we, we get along just fine. And somebody I get along with just fine who's on the left of the spectrum is uh, NDP Member of Parliament for Timmins James Bay and a member of the Ethics Committee and uh, lead singer and songwriter with Grievous Angels, Charlie Angus. We get along okay, eh, Charlie? Well, Roy, I think I'm becoming a co-host on your show at the rate we're going with. You're looking for money, aren't you? uh, We're going to have to work this out. You're looking for money, aren't you? (laughs) Nope. (laughs) Nope, I don't don't have to worry about that. I'm strictly a member of Parliament. (laughs) (laughs) So let's talk about, I'm going to just sort of jump all over the place in our conversation here. Let's talk about other members of Parliament who are part of the minority government, liberal MPs, who are paid a lot of money, you know, it's it's really good pay, just under two hundred thousand bucks a year, and uh, at a time when we just found out a couple of weeks ago that one point three million Canadians have now reached the six months unemployed uh, mark, which is very difficult for them. And and here, I mean, I saw your video, and I've seen Mike uh, Barrett's video, he, the Conservative MP, he was on yesterday, of Liberal members of Parliament at the Ethics Committee on Friday, while you're trying to get the government's business done and get answers to questions that are very relevant. They're talking about. Underwear. And you have it on YouTube. So what was it like to sit in there and go through that? Roy, I found it a very dismal. And, and you know, I have to admit, uh, democracy doesn't often raise up to uh, the best rhetorical rhetoric and, and vision stuff. But that's functioning democracy. People show up. They get elected from all kinds of communities. Sometimes they get testy. Sometimes they get cranky. Sometimes they get stupid. But in a functioning democracy, they debate. Um, and then it goes to a vote, and then you move on. But what we've been seeing at the Ethics Committee is we're now 40 hours into a filibuster by the Liberals to stop my motion from going forward, to to look into the Wee scandal, to work look into the scandal around David McNaughton and um, his lobbying for the group Palantir, to look into the Frank Bayless contract. We don't know if Frank Bayless, because it was a former Liberal got this contract for ventilators um, because he's a really good businessman or because he had, you know, political insights. It's the job of the ethics committee to look at this. In 40 hours, we have watched the liberals uh, play procedural games. And it, it, it really went off the rails this past Friday when there was this bizarre set of arguments and counter arguments about, you know, who raised the issue of underwear in Stanfield's uh, underwear company that had been around since the 1850s. These are the political games that it's descended to. And it's really, really concerning because uh, we're in the middle of a pandemic. To make, for the government to make a, 
parliamentary committee unworkable. To, to, to shut it down is really concerning. And the one thing about the ethics committee, it is one of the checks and balances committees. It is always chaired by an opposition chair because its job is to keep an eye on government. And I'll tell you, Roy, I saw some wild days under the Stephen Harper days, and there were some fierce and wicked battles at that ethics committee, but the ethics committee always operated. It always met. It, it didn't always come up. <laughs> it came out pretty battered sometimes, but it met. Now we're being stopped. So as a committee, you pointed out what you're looking for, the information that you want. You also want um, information. You're, you're pursuing the issue of um, the uh, the Kilberger brothers. Uh, you've talked to us about this before, and I and, and it, you were telling us about uh, a prog- some sort of program or initiative that's underway in the United States. Uh, talk to us about that, and and what else it is that you're looking for? Because really, the answers. If I look at what you're looking for, Charlie, the answers shouldn't be that hard to come up with. This would be a pretty straightforward study. And, you know, last summer, Minister Qualtrough came, and she was certainly uh, feted by the Kielberger brothers. She was invited to their meet a we events. But she was pretty straight up. She said, listen, uh, we were having to make a lot of decisions very quickly. We made those decisions. We made some mistakes. I can accept that. But what I can't accept is misrepresentation about how that $912 million contract went down. That's the issue that we have with Minister Chagger. And it seems that the government has decided to literally circle the wagons um, around Justin Trudeau's relationship with the Kielbergers at the same time as this major American foundation that's also tied to the Kielbergers are running full-page ads in the newspapers exonerating them. I don't have a problem with the Kielbergers defending their reputation, but I do have a problem that our committee cannot present the report that I think contradicts a lot of the claims that are being made in these carefully posted op-eds. We have work to do, and, and Roy, it has been the equivalent of 20 meetings that have been blocked in 40 hours of test of, of filibustering. 20 hours of meetings would have meant we would have been done this report a long time ago, and we'd be on to other things. So the, the COVID numbers are skyrocketing. We're coming into a really, uh, I think, medically dangerous period. We need all our committees working and to be interrupted and interfered with this by the prime minister because it's not i you know i i feel bad for my liberal colleagues they're they're being really dumb but it must be very corrosive for themselves to have to do that they're being told to go in and disrupt our committee uh and i gotta ask why is justin trudeau so afraid of us finding out what was the relationship with the kielberger brothers yeah, I mean, it's a relevant, it's a very relevant question to ask. And for people who say it isn't, just keep in mind that Mario Dion, the ethics commissioner in, uh, Conflict of Interest Act commissioner in Parliament, is investigating Mr. Trudeau. And, uh, I, there's just too many loose ends wiggling around in the breeze. Yes. And, you know, Roy, I've heard many times people say, oh, you know, get over it. People don't care about scandal. Well, people don't care until it starts to add up, and then they start to distrust. And if they distrust a government, that's that's completely toxic. And the one of the things I was thinking this past week is that one of, the, I think, the shifting moments for Stephen Harper's government was when he got a reputation of being dismissive about the democratic process. You know, the, the prorogation stuff, and Stephen Harper seemed like it was my way or the highway. And Justin Trudeau has is walking very much into that path. And once Canadians identify that they have a leader who doesn't 
respect democracy, who doesn't think the rules apply. Canadians will put up with a lot, but they don't put up with that, not for long. So uh, I, I'm, my message to my Liberal colleagues is uh, be very careful uh, what you're doing right now, because these things will come back to haunt, and they can haunt the system by undermining it, but it'll also hurt politically. You know, we just have to remember that last October the 21st, the Liberal government was returned with a minority and uh, and, and, and really with the lowest winning percentage of any winning federal party in the history of Canada, in the history of this country. So that should be sending a very strong message. And by, re- by just carrying forth about underwear in the ethics committee, what they're basically doing is trying to create the, the impression that the committee and its work is irrelevant. And that's dangerous. It's very dangerous, Roy. And that, that's what concerns me. And I think, you know, the whole Kielberger scandal... The Prime Minister was doing so well. He had so much trust with Canadians. We were, we were all trying to work together. That was the moment it went off the rails. And instead of putting it back and saying, listen, we made a big mistake. We get it. We understand. We're going to fix this. Um, they've decided that this is going to be their battleground. And since we can't get off that, we can't get back onto other things. And that, so, I think, is going to be very corrosive for the Prime Minister's reputation. But Canadians, they deserve better. So uh, tell me, Charlie. Paid. They want us to work. Yeah. So, so what what happens next after Friday? What happens after that? What happens tomorrow? What happens going forward? Well, we're back. We're back at the committee tomorrow, um, and I, I, it, it's like a very dumb game of siege warfare. I don't know at what point the Liberals are going to break. They keep asking us to compromise. Well, Roy, you know, and you, we've talked about it. I've reached out a couple of times uh, to try and break the logjam, but it seems once we make a new agreement. The, the ground rules shift again. So um, I'm pretty determined that we're going to get this study done one way or the other. Um, and it may, hurt, it may hurt and it may cost a lot of late nights to, to break this filibuster, but they're wasting an enormous amount of resources and we could be on to other things now. I sure could. I, I think sure at could. a certain point they're just going to have to stop. COVID-19 uh, vaccines. The surge and what we should expect, also the ABCs of prevention and how masks help and when they cannot. Uh, Jason Tetro is a microbiologist, the germ guy. Uh, his books include The Germ Code. The podcast is Super Awesome Science Show, award-winning uh, podcast. And um, it's been a while since we've talked. How are you? I'm pretty good. It's uh, it, It's been an interesting few months. I, you have to say that. Boy, has it ever. I exchanged emails with uh, one of our editors at uh, Global News last weekend. And what I wrote was, uh, boy, we'll be happy to see 2020 disappear in the rear view. And the reply I got was, it's not over yet. <laughs> Those <laughs> prophetic words. Well, I mean, it's absolutely true. Uh, the, the big difference from sort of where we were maybe at the, in March and April and, and over the last few months is that uh, we're finally starting to see some good news develop. And, and the vaccines sort of um, are, are sort of giving us that hope um, that that uh, not only is the end of the tunnel coming, but uh, it, it may be coming within the next, you know, at least the start of it will be coming within the next few months. So, so that's great. 
So, Jason, let's talk about, please talk, talk to us about vaccines. There's mm-hmm. pushback, as you know. I spoke yesterday with a professor at, uh, at Oxford University, and they did an international study. She's from Red Deer, by the way. Okay. They did an international story in Europe, and they found 36% of Europeans are saying absolutely not or probably not. Mm-hmm. We're seeing people in this country, seeing numbers rise. People are saying, I don't think so. And, and if you suggest a mandatory vaccine program, the pushback is instant. What do you, what do you want to share with us about vaccines? Well, right now, what we need to be able to do is have about 60 to 70 percent of our population having some kind of immunity to this particular virus, SARS-CoV-2, in order for us to be able to um, get rid of the pandemic. Okay? Now, there's two ways we can approach that. The first way is to let it burn through the population. Um, that's not going to work because we're going to lose way too many lives, and most of them will be unnecessary simply because there won't be enough space in healthcare to be able to take care of them. So that's the first way. The second way is to be able to bring in a very controlled infection um, or, or even programming the body to be able to deal with that infection. And that's what a vaccine does. Um, where it gets a little contentious is the fact that because vaccines have been seen as being the, um, uh, you know, the, the, the uh, panacea, if you will, um, there, there's been a rush by politicians to try and make it seem like it's going to be faster than ever. And unfortunately, that has gotten into the minds of quite a number of people, and they're going to say, you know what, I don't want to have to deal with that. And the thing is, is, here in Canada, it doesn't matter if it's a COVID vaccine or if it's any of the other vaccines. In order for it to be approved, you still have to go through the same level of critique, if you will, from a clinical trial assessment and such. And so anything that's going to be approved here in Canada is going to be guaranteed to be safe and effective. So, I mean, I'm, I'm going to be one of the first people, let's put it this way, day one, I'm eligible, I'm having the vaccine. Yep. My call for me, and I hope, and I think I'm helping others by doing that as well, but it's my decision for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we're in a situation now where we see the numbers are going up on a daily basis, in Ontario today, down 300 from yesterday. So there's a little yep. bit of fluctuation, but they're high. And there's great concern. Mm-hmm. What about the surge? What should we expect in the days, weeks, months ahead? Okay. So the surge itself has actually been kind of um, benign, if you will. And the reason for that is because it's been happening in a much lower age category. So it's been basically between the 20 and 40-year-olds. That's how it was throughout the summer and into the fall. And so we heard you know, large numbers of cases, but at it wasn't really translating into hospitalizations or, or deaths. And, and that's essentially what you expect to happen. Where it gets problematic is then as you start getting into the fall, you start having intergenerational gatherings. In other words, people are gathering with uh, older individuals and also very much younger individuals. And that's where we have this what we call dispersion. And when that happens, all of a sudden, even though your case load is going down because you know people just aren't getting as infected as quickly, it's going into those other age categories, and that's going to result in more hospitalizations and more deaths. Now, you don't have to just take my word for it. happened in France. It's happening in many places in Europe. It's happening in the U.K. as we speak, and it's going to start happening here in Canada. There's nothing we can do about it because the time to not do it or not have that spread was Thanksgiving. And so now we're in a situation where we're going to start seeing those cases going down, but we're going to start hearing more about hospitalizations, ICUs, and unfortunately deaths going up. Even here in Alberta, we were doing such a fantastic job. Now we're in that phase. 
So what I what, what I'm going to hear back is this, and I heard this at Thanksgiving. You mentioned Thanksgiving, so we're not supposed to get together as families, intergenerational mm-hmm. groups on Thanksgiving. But that, that's on Sunday. But on Tuesday, everybody's okay to go to the to the to the uh, to the box store. In people's minds, that does not make sense. So can you talk to us, please, again, in the minute or so we have left, about what are the what are the fundamentals of prevention? Fundamentals are very simple. Um, it's called the ABCs. Uh, you want to block your airway, whether it be a barrier protection like a mask or social distancing away from other people, regardless if you're in the box store or if you happen to be at home, go outside. Easy way to do that. B is for bubble. You want to maintain a bubble of people who you trust, virologically, not necessarily emotionally. And then C is context. So if you're going to be or being around other people who happen to be outside of your bubble, get to know who they are, get to have their contact information, so that if anyone does come up positive, the contact tracing will be much simpler and we'll be able to um, essentially stamp out the virus by keeping people protected and isolated rather than having major lockdowns. Simple as that. You know, I always enjoy talking to you. Uh, you're, you're able to explain things to me, and if you can explain things to me, you can explain them to anybody. <laughs> you, have a, you have a great, great way of communicating, and you do it also with a super awesome science show podcast on Curious Cast. Susie Golding is with us from Oakville, Ontario. Susie is, uh, well, she battled COVID, and then when that was done, COVID battles continued, but they were different and uh, they resulted in serious health repercussions for months. We've spoken to Susie on this program before. She started a Facebook page, COVID Long Hauler Support Group Canada, and uh, the numbers have just exploded and increasingly with younger Canadians participating with or post COVID experience. Susie, thank you for coming back on the show. What were your, let's go back to the beginning. What were your initial symptoms and, and when did that happen? Hi, Roy. Thanks for having me again. Um, initially, I fell ill at uh, the end of March, March the 21st, and the first symptom that I had was a mild sore throat, um, the sinus infection, ear infection, um, loss of taste, uh, bad cough, um, then it fell into my digestive tract, I was experiencing flu-like symptoms, diarrhea, stomach cramps, um, GERD. Uh, gas and um, stomach acid, and then it went into my heart. Um, irregular heartbeats, I felt like I was having a heart attack almost. And then from there, uh, that took about two months. Um, from there, I was tested, actually came back negative. Um, and then I started spe- uh, experiencing all kinds of neurological issues. It sort of came like a, uh, hit me like a Mack truck. It was just uh, a great wall of fatigue. Um, I wasn't able to do anything, really. It was just uh, devastating. Just really, I was bedridden for a while. And now I'm suffering with the lingering symptoms that don't seem to go away. I'm dizzy all the time. Um, I have tinnitus. Uh, my coordination is off. I, uh, my balance is bad. I fall over a lot. Um, my concentration loss is, is uh, very evident. Um, I have a lot of memory issues, brain fog. Um, I'll see something and um, like a, a chair, and just the word won't come to my mind. It's just like things are missing, things are not connecting. Um, I used to be a, a floral designer and not able to work now. I was a, a very fast-paced environment. I'm used to multitasking, and I really 
um, become a shell of, of what I used to. I'm exercise intolerant. I can't exercise. Or what happens is uh, if we if we do some if we exercise, we go into a relapse, and that's when symptoms start getting really bad again, and and other symptoms that have sort of subsided um, come back to to bother us. So there's a lot going on still. So tell me, tell, tell me, please, uh, your Facebook group. You started with, out with, I think the first time we talked to you had something like 2,000 members. How many do you have now? But now we're almost 8,200 members. Um, it just started at the end of June. And uh, I started the, the groups for a safe place. I just wanted to speak to other people who had experienced um, COVID like myself and, yeah. you know, to discuss our symptoms. And just sort of now we're like a ground zero of survivors. And we're compiling street-level data and the polls that we create and sharing our information with one another and our experiences. So tell, tell us, how does the medical community, the traditional, the, uh, the, the, the medical community, how do they view you, uh, long haulers? They're very confused about us, as, as we all are ourselves, too. Um, it's really difficult being ill uh, with this disease. Um, because the medical community doesn't have a lot of information. Um, we're not being followed. Uh, that will take, you know, quite some time for them to have any scientific data on us. So there's yeah. really not much that they can do except for, you know, treat us for the symptoms that we have. Um, and it's difficult because we it's a multi-system virus. So we're, uh, you know, we're going from specialist to specialist, and yeah. it can take six months to, to get to see one specialist. And then they, sorry. Yeah. No, no, I just wanted to know, uh, do, do you have any idea, are you getting better? Do you have any, should you have a date set, circled on the calendar where you think, you know, by that date I've got to be back to normal? Is, is it, are you able to do that? I wish. Um, no, I have no idea. I'm, I'm hoping that in time um, things will get better, but it's, it's not a linear, um, you know, constant uh, recovery. It's like, like I said, if you do too much, if you exert yourself too much, then you'll pay for it for two to three days. And it's just bizarre. Like, things just keep happening. I, I, my immune system is really down now. Um, I just had a bout of shingles, and I had another oh virus my. in my eye. So it's just things just keep hammering down on us. Um, it just doesn't want to go away. And, and although the, the, the acute symptoms that we start off with sort of taper off, um, we're left with a, a bunch of symptoms that wane and sort of ebb and flow. Um, yeah. COVID, and go, so. Uh, so, Susie, I'm sorry to do this to you because, you know, the clock always gets us. But uh, I want to talk to you some more and we'll do it in the, in the very near future. But the, the, web page, the, the Facebook page is COVID Long Haulers Support Group of Canada. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.